A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome, history, friends, patrons, all, to the Thirty Years' War episode 11. So this is the story of the emergence of Sweden onto the European stage, and this is a story which the Thirty Years' War would make famous. When we think of the Thirty Years' War, this may very well be the first thing that we think of. The dashing, heroic picture of Gustavus Adolphus as he triumphs over his enemies and redefines warfare as we know it. The reality isn't so simple as that, we've explored Gustavus's greatest hits in other places already, but the background to Gustavus's story is, in my view, almost as fascinating as the end destination, so today we're going to look at that background in some good detail. Things certainly didn't look very promising for Gustavus when the 17-year-old king succeeded to the throne of Sweden in 1611. His empire was at war with virtually all of its neighbours, with the Poles, with the Danes, and even with the Russians. There was no indication at this stage of all that Gustavus would do, and the conflict which would make his name was at this point, of course, not even in play. The Thirty Years' War would provide Gustavus with the platform to distinguish Swedish prestige, and it would also gain Sweden a seat at the great power table, in a flourishing of imperial Swedish power, which was to last a whole century. Fun fact, if you weren't aware, in the Patreon feed we're actually covering almost what can be considered the back end of this story. So if you're interested in hearing about how Sweden's empire essentially crumbled in Russia, then make sure you check out Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which we're covering at the moment now. Poland Is Not Yet Lost is available to all patrons who pay a fiver a month or more, and it is of course not only about Sweden and Russia, it's also about that power trapped in the middle, the Poles, and how the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth went on to survive against all odds in the 18th century, only to be cruelly snuffed out by the end of that century. It's a fascinating story, it's one which I've been really enjoying covering, and it's funny really to cover it at the same time as covering literally the beginnings of that story here. It goes to show how interconnected these different centuries were, and it also goes to show that sometimes happy accidents can make my podcasting schedule seem far more intelligent and together than it actually is. Speaking of being intelligent and together, Gustavus Adolphus was going to need all his wits about him because he had an awful lot of challenges to confront. We'll begin our story as we began all other European tales in the 1590s, when Gustavus Adolphus was born to a Sweden torn in several different directions. Without any further ado, I hope you're ready for this story, I hope you're relaxed, I hope you're comfortable, and that for the next half an hour, you and I will go on a journey together. Let's begin. 
What's the first thing that rushes to your mind in 1598 when you think of Western Europe? For many, it could be the image of France and Spain signing the Peace of Vervon and ending several decades of ruinous religious and civil warfare in the process. Well, that could well be accurate, but in 1598 something else was happening. You see, in 1598, in Sweden, there was a far more weighted, ominous image to deal with. This was the image of Sigismund Vasa, sailing away from Stockholm, mournfully lamenting the treachery of his uncle Charles, and vowing to take revenge. Sigismund Vasa was the Charles V of the North. He had been born to a Polish mother and a Swedish father, and he had inherited both realms, even though the Polish crown was technically elective. Ascending to the throne of Poland and Sweden by 1592, Sigismund seemed poised to unite the two realms and to make the House of Vasa into a name greater than any other in the North. Opportunities for glory, expansion and enrichment abounded, but even as the crown of Sweden was placed on his head, Sigismund encountered problems. His uncle Charles was a Lutheran, as was much of Sweden's population, where Sigismund, according to the wishes of his mother, had been brought up a Catholic and during some trying times earlier in his life, he had been taught to rely on the Jesuits, who remained by his side to the end of his days. In terms of the religious differences amongst his scattered people, then, Sigismund was every bit like Charles V, but that was where the similarities ended. His domains may not have been as large as those of Charles V, but they were certainly an acceptable consolation prize. Poland-Lithuania, Sigismund's first crown, was a composite state effectively ruled by the nobility, which nonetheless boasted an elective monarchy. This complex and multi-layered polity is best known as the Commonwealth, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in the Patreon feed right now, we're covering the story of this Commonwealth in far more detail. But for now, it suffices to note that the nobles held sway in the Commonwealth, and they saw themselves as pioneers in advancing the rights of their class and in avoiding that eternal bugbear of all civilised states, absolutism. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was the largest state in Europe, apart from Muscovy to the distant Wild East, and under the Commonwealth's writ were lands almost 1 million square kilometres in size. This incredible accumulation of land under the Commonwealth was a result of the haphazard expansion of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which was fused to Poland in 1569, as much as it was also due to the enterprising ambitions of the Poles themselves, who brought democracy and civilization, putting them in air quotes by the way, to modern-day Belarus, Ukraine and Livonia. Livonia was the name given to the duchy which constituted the modern-day Baltic states of Latvia and Estonia, and its rich ports and geographically important location rendered it something of a hot potato between the relevant powers over the previous decades. With Muscovy, Sweden, Denmark and the eventually victorious Poles all vying for the loyalties of its nobility and the rights over its lands. The last century had been something of a golden age for Polish culture and commerce as wealthy nobles had increased their land holdings to grow fat and happy on the lucrative grain trade and they traded this grain in exchange for finished European goods. You probably know the story already, but just in case you're unaware, since the late 14th century, Poland and Lithuania had shared the same dynasty, the dynasty being the Jagiellonian. A bit of a mouthful, but this dynasty held the crowns of Poland and Lithuania, and sometimes Bohemia, Hungary and Croatia as well. The dynasty expanded its horizons through different marriage efforts, which only the Habsburgs would supersede, and even the Habsburgs were probably a little bit impressed. 
Not all good things could last forever, though, and the looming extinction of the Jagiellonian dynasty and fear of mutual enemies, as much as historical traditions and the power of the nobility, compelled the two entities of Poland and Lithuania to transform their union from a dynastic one into a real union in 1569, when the Union of Lublin was signed. Among other things, the Union of Lublin was the opportunity for the nobility of both sides to band together as a multinational parliament, the same, was incepted at Warsaw, and religious toleration guaranteed for all. Another critically important decision which was made was essentially the decision to transform concession into official policy, and by that I mean all kings of Poland would henceforth be elected. Blood claims alone would no longer be sufficient to guarantee the successful ascension to the Polish throne. By the time Sigismund was elected to that throne in 1587, the nobility of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had already been ruled by a French king and a Hungarian king, and the maternal pedigree of Sigismund, his mother had been the sister of Poland's last Jagiellonian king, recommended him to the nostalgic election same. Sigismund was crowned as King Sigismund III of Poland, but for the 21-year-old prince this was only the first step. His next step was to wait until his father, King John III of Sweden, had died. And once that happened, Sigismund obtained the Swedish crown, with far less faffing around by the nobility, thanks largely to the efforts of his father John and his uncle Charles in bringing the nobility over to the side of the Swedish kings. Sigismund's father, King John, had been somewhat concerned at his brother Charles's growing wealth and influence, which had enabled Charles to carve out a duchy for himself in central Sweden, and to wield a considerable amount of power for himself within Swedish society. Still though, Charles remained loyal to his brother John, and to his nephew Sigismund, so long as his most honourable nephew Sigismund appointed him regent of Sweden, that is, and granted his uncle full and sweeping powers to act in Swedish lands, while Sigismund was gone. The relationship between uncle and nephew seemed destined to worsen once King John died, and when this happened in November 1592, the cracks began to appear between uncle and nephew with each passing year. Uncle Charles had clearly grown used to the power he had accumulated and wielded while helping his brother out, and he didn't want some upstart half-Polish ingrate reducing his powers. Neither Sigismund nor Charles went about things particularly amicably. The mutual distrust and religious differences also didn't help matters. Co-opting some elements of Sweden's deed, in 1597, Uncle Charles outlawed the Regency government, which Sigismund had installed, to protect his interests while he was back in Poland. In treaties to reverse this decision and put that Regency government back, thank you very much, were ignored by Charles, and Charles began reinforcing his portfolio of castles which he held, and buying up more land from the now deeply divided nobility, who saw on the horizon a conflict between uncle and nephew, and the fact that they would soon have to choose. Many of Sweden's noble families didn't want to choose, but the quarrel between uncle and nephew forced their hands. Most, as it happened, flocked to Sigismund's banners, and with most of the Swedish nobility, but less of the strategic advantages, Sigismund returned several times to Sweden with expeditionary forces to reclaim his Swedish crown, which Charles still hadn't officially usurped. In fact, as it happened, Charles was biding his time and preparing the ground for this new branch of the House of Vasa, which was to rule Sweden. Charles could offer the nobility of Sweden a proper Protestant line which would serve Swedish interests, 
and, of course, Charles's interests, property, rather than suffer an absentee Catholic king. The trauma of the civil war between the Vasa branches was momentarily breached in 1599 by an interesting offer. This offer being, if Sigismund would send his son Vladislav to Sweden to be raised as a Lutheran, then the Swedish Riksdag would accept this and would cease their rebellion against him, and they would also alienate Charles. Sigismund was plainly unable to accede to this demand though, placing as he did the demands of the Jesuits, who would never allow Sweden to drift out of the Catholic orbit on their approval, above all other counsel. It was, of course, doubtful how united behind this proposal Sweden would have been, but in any case, Sigismund dismissed it without too much thought. As a result, he lost his chance to save the situation in Sweden, and by extension, he lost the Swedish crown. By this action, in a little-known family feud in the closing years of the 16th century, the House of Vasa was destined to be divided along its Catholic line with Sigismund at its head, ruling in Poland, and then its Lutheran line, with Uncle Charles, crowned in 1604 as King Charles IX, ruling in Stockholm. The ambitious union which Sigismund had so hoped for between Poland and Sweden had ended with a messy divorce, and Sigismund had to share some of the blame for this turn of events. It almost seemed as though, as the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II would later reflect, that in order to make sure of heaven, Sigismund has renounced earth, Sigismund and Charles, member of the same House of Vasa family, were now enemies in the dynastic and the religious sense, and as the years progressed, this feud between the Swedish and Polish Vasa branches was sharpened by the foreign policy decisions of each side. Both Charles and Sigismund focused their attentions on Livonia, that lucrative corner of the Baltic where great opportunities for trade existed for those willing to seize them. Charles believed he was equal to the task, and he landed with an army of 8,000 in 1602, with a view towards taking these Baltic jewels for his burgeoning kingdom. By taking Livonia from Poland, Charles would be able to severely hamper his nephew's coffers, but in this act, the up-to-now successful Charles managed to overstep. In previous quarrels, the nobility, or Zlachta of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, were willing to allow the conflict between uncle and nephew to simmer, having nothing much to do with it themselves. The one exception to this rule was the notable occasion when a generous grant of 17,000 soldiers was made to Sigismund to reclaim Sweden in 1598, in a campaign which was ultimately unsuccessful and led to the image we had of him sailing away mournfully from Sweden in 1598, vowing revenge. That this campaign was unsuccessful intimated to the Polish-Lithuanian nobles that Sweden could not be retaken, and it should be let to slip out of their king's orbit. But Sigismund, of course, bitterly contested this idea, and that bitterness would lead to a rift between the two families that lasted, essentially, until the late 17th century. It made sense that the Polish nobility had little enthusiasm for helping Sigismund to fight against his uncle in what was really just a dynastic war, a family feud and little business of theirs. But where Charles overstepped in 1602 was when he decided to take the fight to Sigismund by invading Livonia. Livonia, as we said, the modern-day Baltic states, were lands under the protection of the Commonwealth but they also happened to house some lucrative estates and manor houses, as well as some important agricultural investments, thanks to the Commonwealth's nobility. Suddenly, with their own interests directly threatened by the Swedish upstart, 
the Polish Szlachta now did have a reason to fight against Sigismund's uncle, and they did so in one of the most incredible, stunning ways possible. During the Battle of Kirkholm in September 1605, the Winged Hussars, Poland's elite shock cavalry, were sent in, and in the space of less than half an hour, they utterly routed the numerically superior Swedish forces. Charles and the remnants of his army were sent packing, and Livonia was never seriously threatened by him ever again. With Charles licking his wounds, King Sigismund now had the perfect opportunity to put his uncle down once and for all, with another invasion of the land of his birth. At this very moment, though, Sigismund was forced to relearn that critical lesson which all Polish kings in their turn would have to absorb. That lesson being, always keep your nobility on side. You see, contrary to the impression which their stellar performance at the Battle of Kirkholm may have given, Poland's nobility was not at all happy with King Sigismund. And this is where we come back to the Union of Lublin from 1569, because one formidable aspect of this treaty was the confirmation of the nobles' right to form what was called a confederation. As a concept, confederations have no equivalent outside of Poland, but they were a symptom of the near total hold which the nobility had on the Commonwealth's inner and outer workings. If you as a noble were to form a confederation, it meant that you were going to instigate a rebellion against your Polish king in the event that that king failed, deliberately or otherwise, to recognise and respect the privileges laid down in the Union of Lublin's list of demands. This list of demands were named the Henrican Articles after the first elected king, the Valois king, Henry, in 1573. In his years fighting against his uncle, Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. King Sigismund had manifestly failed to uphold these demands, even going directly against the spirit and grain of the Henrican Articles on several occasions and displaying the uttermost disrespect to the magnates who held so much power. Sigismund was playing with fire, but he never seemed quite comfortable with the idea that he would be held accountable for his actions. In spring 1606, though, only a few months after their shattering defeat of Charles's army in Livonia, a confederation of nobles rose up in revolt against Sigismund's authority and declared him deposed 
as a penalty for failing to uphold his commitments and capitulations to the Schlachter. The nobility's list of grievances was long and it wasn't unjustified. Sigismund had engaged in an expensive war with Charles for far longer than the nobility deemed acceptable. He had failed to defeat Charles in the late 1590s and he had failed to seize the diplomatic initiative as well due to his uncompromising Catholicism and his dynastic ambition. Speaking of Catholicism, Sigismund had shown himself completely contemptuous of the Religious Toleration Acts which had been passed by the same and guaranteed under the Union of Lublin, and he favoured Catholics over his Protestant and Orthodox subjects. He even outlawed Protestant worship in Krakow altogether. This was not on though, because since the early 16th century, the same had declared its rights to control Polish foreign policy. But Sigismund's militant Catholicism and his favour for Jesuits had netted him a second marriage with the sister of Ferdinand of Styria, soon to be Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II, and he did this all behind the same back and without their approval. And in domestic policy as well as we alluded to, Sigismund was very far indeed from a beacon of religious tolerance. In the process of creating his foreign policy, he had created a militant Catholic bloc, which the king believed would help him regain his Swedish crown. He never gave up on either the crown of Sweden or his religious mission, even though upon his ejection from Sweden, it is estimated that less than 250 Catholics remained in the whole of that country. Influenced by the Jesuits though, and motivated by his dynastic ambitions of revenge against his uncle Charles above all, Sigismund didn't heed the repeated warnings from the Schlachte, brushing aside their concerns and packing his court with Germans, whom he preferred further alienating the nobles and magnates who had come to talk with him. If Charles had overstepped by invading Livonia in 1602, then Sigismund had overstepped mightily by assuming that he could rule as he pleased. The nobility in Poland had given him all the leeway and allowances they possibly could bear, and to put it in perspective, the eventual leader of the confederation against him in 1606 was the same man who Sigismund had utterly humiliated by ejecting him from his house and tossing his belongings out into the street simply because King Sigismund wanted this guy's house. Yes, he really was that awful. In the event though, Sigismund, awful though he was, proved very effective at manipulating and dividing the nobility along religious and ethnic lines, and through this policy of divide and conquer, alongside promises to essentially do better next time and forgive all the guilty, Sigismund's loyalists did actually win the battle, and they defeated the confederation in 1609, restoring the king's power in the process. In this whole debacle, King Sigismund had lost the respect of the Zlachta, but he had their begrudging loyalty, since while they'd been fighting amongst themselves, events further afield had taken a volatile course, and now they needed what little leadership he could provide. Indeed, by the time the Commonwealth had settled its internal matters long enough to look outside their immediate bubble, it must have seemed as though all of Scandinavia and Northern Europe was up in arms. Aside from the ill-fated Livonian expedition, King Charles of Sweden could have taken advantage of the respite provided by the Confederation to take action against his nephew, or to take stock of his new regime and consolidate his position. But as the Poles fought amongst themselves, the new King Charles was troubled by an old enemy to the west, Denmark. The history of Danish-Swedish relations was long and bloody even before King Christian IV of Denmark authorised a new conflict against his Scandinavian neighbour. 
It was King Christian IV of Denmark's ancestor, Queen Margaret of Denmark, who in 1397 had created something unprecedented, the Kalmar Union. The Kalmar Union constituted a personal union of Denmark-Norway and Sweden-Finland, always under a Danish king. Thanks to the dominant economic position and its toehold in Germany, Denmark quickly dominated its less developed Swedish neighbour, and over the 1400s, the relationship between Denmark and Sweden remained inconsistent. If it was strengthened, this was only due to the challenge posed by the other power in the Baltic of any consequence, the Hanseatic League. The Hanseatic League is something you've probably heard of, and you may well know everything there is to know about it, but for those who've never heard of it before, the Hanseatic League was a grouping of German and Baltic trading towns who essentially pledged mutual assistance and advantageous trade deals between each other, and who jealously guarded these rights from other powers too. Sometimes the Swedes took advantage of the threat posed by the Hanseatic League, which always maintained a large and formidable naval presence in the Baltic Sea, to demand more power for themselves, kind of like what we saw the Protestants doing, or the Calvinists doing in the Holy Roman Empire, when the Turks were on their borders and they pressured the Holy Roman Emperor for more religious concessions. This was the same idea, but the Kalmar Union remained in place only until 1523, when King Christian II of Denmark, not King Christian IV, effectively dissolved this Kalmar Union through his own needless brutality. How brutal was he? Well, in an attempt to halt the endless opposition from Sweden's nobility, Christian II became involved in the infamous Stockholm bloodbath of 1520, where over 100 leading Swedish nobles were executed on trumped-up charges of heresy, and which led to the Swedish uprising under an ambitious young nobleman, Gustav Vasa. Gustav Vasa's rebellion successfully cleaved the Swedish lands away from Denmark, and with the crowning of the first Vasa king of Sweden in 1523, the Kalmar Union was no more. Gustav Vasa hadn't merely dissolved the Kalmar Union, he'd also established a new royal house, the House of Vasa, hence the name. This House of Vasa would maintain an active presence in Northern Europe for the next 200 years. It was all quite an accomplishment, quite a feat really, but the mission was not accomplished yet, largely because Denmark still dwarfed Sweden in virtually every respect. Her people were more densely packed together in comparison to Sweden's sprawling populace, her industry and culture were more developed, and she was connected to the Holy Roman Empire, whereas Sweden was that distant, rocky northern shore of the Baltic. It was barbarous, mysterious, and supposedly at the far limits of what was then considered European civilization. The most recent conflict between Denmark and Sweden, there had been a lot of conflicts between them since the Kalmar Union fell apart, but the most recent one had been ended with a truce in 1570. Peace had been maintained for a generation, but the two powers manoeuvred against each other diplomatically all the while. And this was a process which reached new heights with the fusing of two houses together, as King John of Vasa and Catherine Jagiellonica were wed. As the historian Robert Frost wrote, and as we have already seen, this attempt to seal the Polish-Swedish alliance was to miscarry badly. Back in Poland, Sigismund had emerged on the other side of his civil war in 1609 to acquire an appreciation of his nobility's volatility, but very little else. He continued on as normal and he refrained from fixing or even addressing the issues which had led to the confederation in the first place. 
These were acts of neglect which would have a terminal impact upon Polish stability and central authority later on in the 17th century. Once again though, Sigismund's thoughts quickly turned to foreign policy from 1609, as this Polish king was made aware of the opportunities present in another disintegrating neighbour, Muscovy. Muscovy's entry into the 17th century was, in the words of one historian, far from auspicious. After Ivan the Terrible's death in 1584, the Tsardom of Muscovy descended into a shaky series of successions, before degenerating altogether into civil war, aggravated by terrible harvests and dark winters over the years 1601-03. With the Russian nobility separating into competing blocks, the opportunity was ripe for Sigismund to seize the Tsardom for his own family. If Sweden's throne was not practical, then a Russian consolation prize would surely have to do. Sigismund's incredibly high ambitions and haughty diplomacy seemed justified, and his perceptions accurate, when Polish winged hussars and heavy infantry again routed their opposition, this time during the short battle of Klusino on the 4th of July 1610. With that shattering victory, the road to Moscow was open, just like that, and Polish soldiers occupied Moscow for two full years, acquiring the support necessary for Sigismund's son Vladislav to be declared Tsar of Russia around that time. This stunning achievement suggested that Muscovy would be added to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and that the years of Russo-Polish conflict would soon be over. Sigismund would surely have imagined that with the pacification of Russia and the support of her nobles, another invasion of Sweden would be possible, and the ailing King Charles of Sweden would be forced to hand his kingdom over to its rightful Vasa Polish Catholic king. If that happened, Sigismund's realms, combining Poland, Russia and Sweden together, would constitute the largest continuous stretch of land since the Mongol Empire. He would be able to establish an unrivaled platform of power in the northeast, complete with sons to succeed him and even greater plans for the future. As was so often the case with Sigismund though, you're probably noticing a pattern here, the grand designs inherent in his plans were portrayed by his own narrow-mindedness and dogmatism. Just like he had stood out like a sore thumb to the Lutheran Swedes, he also inspired a precious little confidence in the Orthodox Russians, and once they overcame the shock of their defeats, Muscovy's patriots rallied against him and the rule of Sigismund's son. Within a few bitter months, Vladislav's Russian title of Tsar was rendered as empty as Sigismund's claim on the Swedish throne. Father and son of the Vasa dynasty would maintain the illusion for the remainder of Sigismund's life that Sigismund was the uncrowned king of a kingdom outside his reach and father to a son who would never see Russian soil again but nonetheless claimed the Russian crown. By 1613, the Russians had selected their new Tsar, Michael Romanov, yes, of the Romanov dynasty, and while Sigismund never recognised or accepted Tsar Michael, this development signalled the beginning of the end, not just for his dynasty's ambitions, but for Polish independence itself. By 1613, in fact, much had changed in Northern Europe. The region had been rocked by several years of tension and conflict, and Sigismund had no reason to suspect that the opportunities for regaining the Swedish crown had been totally lost. This was because his tenacious uncle, King Charles IX, had died, and in dying, he had left a 17-year-old on the throne. According to Swedish custom, a king had to be 24 before he could wield fully the prerogatives of his crown, 
And so long as King Gustav Adolf II could not do this, Sweden was vulnerable. It was doubly vulnerable on the other hand because in April 1611, the tensions between Sweden and its old Danish foe erupted into war, and King Christian IV of Denmark trounced the Swedish forces sent against him, providing an unenviable challenge for the new Swedish king, now at war on several fronts. At home and abroad, Gustav Adolf was beset by problems. His late father had alienated his noble supporters and created a string of opportunistic new men in Sweden, who were sure to try and manipulate the young king in the sensitive years before he properly came of age. Swedish administration did boast some bright lights, though, in spite of the desperate want for an organised education or training system for the civil service, which it still did not have. Foremost among these bright lights was a man called Axel Oxenstierna, who would subsequently rise up the ranks of Swedish government and reign as the kingdom's undisputed chancellor for several decades during Sweden's brightest and darkest times. We'll certainly be meeting Axel Oxenstierna again, so keep him in your mind for the moment. With several capitulations made to the nobility and the clergy, King Gustav Adolf set to work halting the Danish advance, while Swedish soldiers also fought the Russians in Livonia and remained on guard constantly against another invasion from Sigismund. The invasion from Sigismund never came because, as we saw, the Polish king was too distracted by his efforts to redefine Russia's relationship with the Commonwealth to intervene in much force in Sweden. This was just as well because Sweden had proved itself unequal to the challenge of King Christian IV of Denmark and his invasion. Had Sigismund freed himself from the Russian commitments earlier and attacked Sweden instead at this point, then he may have found that he was successful. As Geoffrey Parker noted, If Sigismund had actually invaded again as he had in 1598, few would have fought to the death for the young Gustav, or for the memory of his cleric, autocratic father. The junior branch of the House of Vasa was saved not by its own efforts, but by Poland's involvement in Russia. Indeed, so interconnected were the different North European theatres that King Gustav managed to secure a peace with Denmark at a terribly high cost in January 1613, just at the point when Sigismund was finishing up his Russian commitments. The playing field was by no means even between these two branches of the House of Vasa, and there certainly remained several opportunities for conflict in the future, but from 1613, a certain watershed moment had been passed. This portion of the continent, almost in a world of its own, didn't consider too heavily events that were taking place in the West, or even in the Holy Roman Empire. There was clearly more than enough to occupy the rulers of Poland, Sweden, Denmark and Russia between them. However, a time would come, fascinatingly and incredibly, when this section of Europe would be pulled closer into the morass of the Thirty Years' War. And when this happened, the rivalries of the House of Vasa, as much as the experience and reputation of King Gustavus Adolphus, would be dragged with them. So I hope you've enjoyed this examination, this kind of crash course into the disconnected, apparently, but actually very connected theatres of the Baltic, Scandinavia and Northeastern Europe. I hope to see you all in two weeks' time, but if you've listened to the end of the episode now, then I want to make you aware of something which, if it hasn't landed in the feed already, will probably be landing very, very soon. It's a surprise, a thank you gift, if you want to call it that. 
So if it hasn't landed yet, be very excited. But if it has, go and check that out. You won't regret it. Other than that, thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to patrons for supporting. My name is Zach. This has been the 11th episode of the 30 Years War. And I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.